Hi everyone, it's Daniel here. This is Stern Chat's 100th episode release. So I just wanted to take a second to thank everyone who has worked on the show since its launch in 2017. There are dozens of people who have worked incredibly hard to make this show what it is. And of course, a special thank you to all of you, our listeners. Without you, none of this would be possible. So thank you for listening and thank you for all of your support. Here's to 100 more, and now on to our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Tiffany Lin. And I'm Daniel Yellen. And today on the show, we had Rob Siemens, Associate Professor at NYU Stern. Rob teaches courses in game theory and strategy, and his area of research is on artificial intelligence, robotics, and the future of work. In 2015, Rob was also appointed as the Senior Economist for Technology and Innovation on President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And we had a chance to talk with Rob about exactly what you'd expect us to talk about with someone who's an expert in artificial intelligence, which is, will we have jobs in 20 years? And if so, what will those jobs look like? We also had a chance to talk with him a little bit about what he thinks the new administration needs to prioritize from a policy standpoint, and it was really interesting. And with that, let's go. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chat, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Rob Siemens, welcome to Stern Chats. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited to have you on. And a lot of our conversation today is going to be about AI and the future of work. But I think that it's important to mention right off the bat that you were an English major in college. And so given what you know about how the world is changing and the new skills that will be required to succeed in this new future of work, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the value of a liberal arts education today. All right. First of all, Stern Chats, thank you very much for having me here. I've been an avid follower, a fan uh, of what you all are doing, and I've been eagerly, eagerly waiting for the invite. <laughs> We're so happy. And they came. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, that's right. So I was an English major in undergrad, and um, let me give you... so. I, I think I think it's important um, for folks to have a liberal arts education. We can come to that a little bit, but let me let, let me like give you a little bit of like the backstory here, right? Because I'm I'm a I'm an economist who works at a business school. The work that I do now has nothing to do with what I did my undergraduate degree in, right? So my undergraduate degree was in English literature. Um, I actually focused on Chaucer, and I did a senior thesis that was focused on. Uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and in particular, the wife of Bath, who's one of the characters uh, in the Canterbury Tales. Um, so, and, and this was at Reed College, that, that's where I did my undergrad. So, while at Reed, doing this, you know, sort of plugging away my English degree, um, it, um, I sort of learned that, that I was supposed to do the equivalent of a minor in a foreign language, and I picked Chinese. Why did I pick Chinese? Um, it always seemed so sort of inscrutable to me, you know, like French or Spanish. Um, you at least recognize, you know, me, me as a native English speaker, I recognize the letters. I can start to try to pronounce it. Um, Chinese, I just, I, you know, who, who knows where to begin? And so it, it always seemed like this mystery to me. So 
Um, I wanted to unlock that mystery, solve it, figure out what, you know, figure out how to speak the language. And so I, I picked Chinese. After a couple of years of doing that uh, in college, it became clear to me that I actually needed to go and live in the country to really fully become fluent in the language. And, and that, that, that's perhaps grandiose. I never became fluent in Chinese, but my Chinese did at one point in time get pretty good thanks to a school year abroad that I did in China. Sorry, this might seem like a digression. It really isn't. That year that I spent in China, so I was in Beijing, this was 1993 to 19, uh, 1994, um, the Chinese economy at that point in time was just opening up. It was booming. Um, it was incredible to see the dramatic economic changes that were happening in the country at that time. And it just, um, something about it really gripped me. And I sort of decided that as a career, I wanted to do something that was somehow very closely tied to um, how people live, how they work. And um, it, it, at that point in time, it just became clear to me that, e that economics was what I wanted to do. And then that sort of started my track to becoming a business school professor and away from being um, an English lit major. Now, that being said, now I, I realize that your listeners can't see this, but Tiffany and Daniel, you can. I'm just gonna turn this slightly, okay? Uh, you guys are getting a very intimate inside look. So this is my bedside table. You see all these beautiful works of art here, <laughs> uh, works of, uh, of literature here. There are probably, what would you say, 20 books sitting on it, Tiffany? Yes, yes. at least right. I think two or three with their uh, pages turned down. Clearly, you, you like more than one. On that? That's Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. That's the second time around for me on that oh, book. Really? Excellent. I love that so book. I, so I haven't lost, yeah, it's, it's a great book. I haven't lost that that passion for for literature, but my, my day job is is different than maybe I expected when I started um, um, when I started college many many moons ago. There are obviously certain types of skills that are going to matter a lot more in the future, and these are skills we can all guess what these skills are. We we know what they are. Um, you know, there um, certain computer science skills, data management skills, and things like that. Um, the reality is, is that um, all of that can be picked up on the fly, right? I, with all due respect to my colleagues here at Stern who um, uh, you know, uh, teach a lot of this, um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I feel like um, if it turns out that something like Python is really important to a job, you can pick it up, right? You can, you can take a quick course online, you can teach yourself, you can maybe learn it from others. But some of the skills that you learn, um, skills is made the wrong word, but so, um, so some of the ways that you grow as an, as an individual through the process of doing a liberal arts undergraduate degree, um, I think help you um, later on in life, right? They, they, they sort of, I, I think the closest analogy to those of us who are at a business school is that they teach you the type of skills that you need to interact in a group with other people to argue your point in a creative way, uh, to be okay with ambiguity, um, and 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 sort of all of those sort of softer type of skills. So I, I think it I think it's super important. And I think one of the interesting things about a liberal arts education is the emphasis on interdisciplinarity, and that is clearly at least from what we've read so far. And hopefully we get to talk to you about today as well. Something that matters to you. You have such an intersection of areas that you research. So tech incentives, 
AI and robotics, of course, future of work, but also you teach a class on game theory, you talk about strategy, and they all tie together so well, but it's a lot of different interests. How did you find those and weave those together? So from my point of view, that, that there's a thread that sort of ties every, all, all of it together. And so it actually is uh, um, all fairly related. So my, my training as an economist taught me a bunch of uh, formal frameworks around game theory. And it's those same frameworks that I teach to students here at Stern. Um, those frameworks informed the research that I did as a doctoral student at UC Berkeley. Uh, where I was really interested in technology strategy and sort of applying those frameworks to uh, various phenomena that, that, that occur in technology strategy. Um, and I just, just to go a little bit deep from it. I mean, so, so the dissertation that I did was around um, uh, incumbent cable TV firms using new technologies as a way to try to prevent other firms from coming into their markets, their local markets. Um, and a lot of the research that I've done since then is sort of at the, the nexus of technology and strategy, right? So that, that, that's sort of that thread there. But then the framework, the sort of uh, theoretical mental model, if you will, frameworks that I take to try to understand what these firms are doing, that's that uh, e you know, economists-oriented, if you will, game-theoretic-oriented lens that I'm taking to try to understand what's happening. So again, from my point of view, they closely tie together. And so what attracted you to NYU and Stern specifically choosing to teach and research at a business school versus, say, a policy school? Um, how did you decide that that was where you wanted to do your work? Uh, so, so some of it is intent and some of it is, is accidental. So I was on the job market in um, the 2008-2009 time period. Okay. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> a little bit like COVID. Um, uh, in the sense that um, there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. There were not many places hiring. Uh, luckily for me, NYU was one of the places hiring. Um, I, you know, I, I gave job talks at several schools. I got offers from several schools, and one of them was NYU. Um, I was super excited by the job offer um, and took it. And I think there were sort of two main reasons why I took the job offer. Um, one... One is sort of personal, and then the other sort of uh, personality fit, if you will. So the personal one is that my family is from the Boston area, and my wife's family, originally from Jamaica, now in the New York City area. And so from a personal point of view, we really wanted to, at that point in time, we didn't yet have a family. We were married, but we didn't have kids, but we knew that we wanted to. Um, we wanted to, we, we loved living on the West Coast, but we wanted to sort of get closer to where our uh, families were. And so that was sort of a, a personal link there. And then from the sort of personality fit point of view, when I came out and spent the sort of two days um, or day and a half meeting with the faculty here, meeting with the doctoral students, um, I really felt like it was the right place for me. You know, I felt like I really got along well with a lot of the faculty. You know, I felt like there was sort of a rapport. It's hard to like measure this type of stuff. It just, it, it's, it's one of those sort of gut feel type things. But uh, I, I perhaps is my liberal arts education, as opposed to my like, you know, I, I did not have an engineering background, right? I have this liberal arts background. Um, but for myself personally, I sort of put a lot of weight on that uh, gut feel. And I just I sort of felt it. I'm curious to hear what your experience has been 
straddling the kind of business and business academia world along with your interests in policy as well. I think it's selfishly, it's an interest of mine because I came from technology policy, came to Stern to build out the business strategy part. And clearly um, from your work and also having been also an economist, Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, you live in both worlds. What has that been like? Um, it's been interesting. I mean, that, so that uh, experience in and of itself was very interesting and, and eye-opening. I'd be happy to talk more about that in a moment. Um, so that's sort of the second part of your question. To the first part of your question about um, what I see as the link between, let's say, like academic research and policy or, or practitioner type world, um, the first is an observation, which is that academic research feels like it's gotten um, more and more insular, you know, as, as various fields, like the fields of economics, for example, or the field of, of sociology, field of psychology. Um, you know, these are sort of the, the core foundational fields that make up much of the research that professors at a place like uh, Stern um, are trained in. Um, the, the research gets so specific and it becomes really hard to talk across disciplines because you have to be, be an expert in, in that one discipline. So it's really hard to talk across disciplines. And then uh, in addition, it becomes really hard to sort of make the translation between what you're doing research in in that discipline and the real world. Right? I, I think there's a real gap there. Um, I think it's I think it will it'll ultimately be problematic for um in general, for, for the university model, right? This isn't maybe specific to business school. This is sort of in general universities. Um, you know, the research that people do is so specific and, and, you, and it takes years and years and years to be trained in, in these really specific fields. And then the link from that to the real world, I mean, there's just a huge gap. Um, one of my sort of hypotheses is that the current model that we have, and, and by the way, it's a, it's a model that has worked really well for me, right? The, the model of you, know, you plug away for, for many years at your field, you get tenure that then gives you more freedom to sort of plug away at your field. That tenure is, if you will, almost like paid for via the tuition, uh, Tiffany and Daniel, that folks like, that, you know, that, that you all are paying. And, and hopefully the work that I'm doing is relevant, relevant enough to the real world that ultimately uh, people benefit, right? But, the, never, you know, it, it's a very specific model and it's not necessarily a model that will always be in place. And so I, I I worry that, say, 50 years or 30 years in the future, the model will be one where the research needs to be much more closely tied to some measurable outcome. Perhaps that was sponsored by a corporation or something like that. Um, and I worry that much of the way that academics are trained isn't setting them up for success um, at that. So, so I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. You can we can check back in thirty or fifty years from now and see if my hypothesis. First of all, we'll see if I'm still alive, and then we'll check and see whether my hypothesis is true or not. Um, let me use that just as a way to make a quick plug for a new center uh, that we have started at uh, here at Stern. It's called the Center for the Future of Management, and one of the key things that we want to be doing in that center is translating um, a lot of the really high quality, cutting edge, peer reviewed research academic research that's being done, uh, particularly in my home department here at Stern, uh, and, and translate that for a broader audience, a broader audience of practitioners and policymakers. That's amazing. 
Yeah, um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. It's, a, you know, the, the center is new. The center was um, uh, officially launched in November of 2020. Uh, but, but that's the hope is to do a lot more sort of translational work, right? A lot, a lot better job of translating the work that we researchers do for a broader audience. And so, Tiffany, to the first part of your question, um, I really enjoy trying to take my work and make it translatable and translated uh, to a broader audience. Um, I feel like every time I do that, it actually it actually helps me with the academic research that I do. It sort of gives me, you know, it, it's almost like sort of stepping outside of yourself for a moment, getting a different view on things, so then you can then take that back to the the research itself. Um, and so I, I really enjoy that. I feel like my research has has benefited from that, and and in a way, it sort of forces you to, as a researcher, to simplify things down a little bit and de-jargonify, I don't know if that's a word, but de-jargonify the, the, the work that you're doing so that you can just clearly try to explain it um, to an audience that's not as steeped in, in that literature. Tiffany, what was the policy work that you did before? Oh, so I was uh, doing a lot of research first in cybersecurity and digital security, and then later on um, working kind of similarly to build up different programs uh, out of the Berkman Klein Center for mm -hmm. Internet and Society uh, to help people first be able to work on these issues in a more practical way, but then also translate these into reports that weren't just 50 page white papers, exactly what you're talking about, trying to get it out in the world. So I, I think that's a great endeavor just because it's the more people who will read about something, the better. What were some of the ways that you did that translation, right? So you'd have like the 50 page report and then what, what would, when you say translation, what would then that look like? Yeah. So I, um, I, for me, I was straight out of undergrad. A lot of it was a lot of drafting and research first drafts, then someone else who was much more qualified than I was would take a look at those drafts. But that translation work specifically looked like reading through, uh, what, 50, 100 different types of papers, trying to understand what people were trying to say, understand the jargon that was being used, and then identify what the main points were, put that on a piece of paper. It was almost helpful that I wasn't so steeped in the area because it was something that I could then, if I could explain it to myself, I could explain it to other people. Right. Um, that, it's a super valuable skill, I feel like. I mean, I it, the way you described it, it, it makes it, it made it sound easy, but I, I think it's actually a pretty hard thing to do. Um, also a liberal arts, I, I came from a liberal arts education as well. I think that's a key, key point that you, a computer can't do it. A machine learning algorithm can't just take 50 papers and output something that explains it. They can perhaps take something and then create their own fake version of a paper that we have mm -hmm. seen before, um, but absolutely not the same. Right. I completely agree. <laughs> um, Daniel, Daniel, do you agree? Yeah. I, I mean, yet this is not my area of expertise. So <laughs> it's um, definitely something I'm interested in learning more about. And as someone who had an undergraduate business education, um, I, I tried to have a little bit more of that liberal arts focus too, made that for myself, but uh, I 100% see the value in learning how to think, learning how to write, learning how to analyze and simplify. And I think those are skills that are done better in a liberal arts environment than especially in an undergraduate business environment when your brain is still rapidly developing at that age and there's a lot that you can learn. 
um, I do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, I was going to say, I am impressed Rob with your ability to turn this interview on its head. And now you're asking us the questions. Um, I think also another product of looking into things and then having questions to ask. And that's a very, I think, liberal arts mindset, but I'm curious, would love to hear just really quickly what some of the research areas of the center that you were talking about are. I know it's very new. I know it's um, it's just in November, but what are the exciting things that you guys are working on right now? Um, yeah, so, so it is a new center. Um, it's a center that right now is comprised of two initiatives. One is, um, one is called the DHL Initiative on Globalization, and the other is called the Strategic Management Initiative. Um, so while the center is new, the initiative on globalization uh, did exist, but in a different form here at Stern for the prior five years. Um, and then just recently in, in December of 2020, um, we received a, a generous naming gift from DHL, um, and, and it's now called the DHL Initiative on Globalization. Um, that initiative has been doing a lot of in-depth research on globalization, uh, trying try to measure trends in terms of uh, uh, global trade, information flows, people flows, and capital flows um, b- between different countries. And they put out something every year called the Global Connectedness Index, GCI. Um, and so please, if you're at all interested in that, if anybody listening is interested in that, please, please take a look at that. Uh, you can find out more at the center's website. It's stern.nyu.edu slash CFM. Um, so that, that's the globalization side of things. And then the strategic management initiative um, is really very nascent. Uh, we're in the process of setting up a couple of um, you know, sort of webinar type things this spring. Um, and then moving forward, there'll be uh, different types of conferences that we hold. Uh, for example, uh, a year from now, we'll host something called the Strategy Science Annual Conference. This, uh, Strategy Science is one of the top journals in, in my field. And every year there's a um, academic conference that gets held. This year it's at Harvard Business School. Last year it was at Utah. Two years ago it was at Wharton. Uh, next year it'll be here at Stern. So we're very excited about that. Um, so, th- so there's some of that ac- sort of um, somewhat standard sort of academic type stuff that we do. Um, And we are looking for ideas, looking for ways to, again, do this sort of translational work that that we've been talking about. Um, Some ways that we'll do that will involve uh, for the academic uh, talks that we have in the academic conferences, trying to bring in practitioners and policymakers. But I want to do more than that. Um, I we're in the process of working out some ideas. I don't want to trot out something half-baked right now, but stay tuned and, and please uh, give us a follow on Twitter or on LinkedIn. When you um, were talking about the work that you were doing at the um, uh, Berk, I, I was mispronounced at Berkman Klein. Berkman Klein Center, yeah. Berkman Klein Center. Lots of donuts. Um, <laughs> um, yes. Um, so, so you were describing part of the work that you were doing as um, you know taking a lot of research this out there, a lot of literature, and then uh, shrinking it down to something, let's call it like bite-sized for um, for a very, sp- well, perhaps for a general audience, okay? Um, you had earlier asked me about the work that I did for the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and I would put that work in two buckets. And one of the buckets is exactly that. It, it's exactly what, um, you know, it, it, it's exactly that type of work where you take a whole lot of work that is in a certain area and you try to condense it down to something bite-sized. Um, and so 
Um, part of the work that happens at the Council of Economic Advisors is figuring out what is sort of state of the art in a specific area. But my area, by the way, while I, while I was there was technology and innovation. And so certain topics around, let's say, like patenting or AI and robots, uh, broadband, anything you could imagine sort of around technology and innovation would come up. And there would be policymakers that, um, let's call them like very high up policymakers, who'd be really interested in like a quick four page overview of what's everything that we know about the patent system and what works well and what doesn't. And there, you know, there's a ton of research that's out there, right? I mean, I could, we could, I mean, there are fo folks here at Stern whose entire careers are around trying to understand what works well and what doesn't work well with the patent system. Um, and so we could talk for days and days and days about that, but the policymaker, right? A top level policymaker doesn't have the time for that. They have half an hour to get as up to speed as they can on state of the art in terms of the US patent system. And so uh, again, one of the buckets of the work that got done at CEA is really trying to condense down all of the work that is out there into something sort of bite-sized and actionable, if you will. So I think of that as sort of this, this term translation that we're tossing around a lot, I, I think of that as like a good example of translation. So that, that was sort of one bucket of the work that was done. Um, another bucket was um, specific areas where, and in particular sort of new areas, like th things were sort of really policy relevant right at that point in time where there might not be a whole body of literature, uh, trying to really wrap our heads around it from the point of view of an economist and come up with some ideas about what might be good policy or not good policy in that area. So we have a new administration now, and I was wondering if given your expertise in technology as it applies to economic issues, if you had the opportunity to hand over a one-page document or had five minutes with Joe Biden, what would be the one policy that you would advocate for at this time? Reform immigration. I, I can't think of a, a single thing that would do more for the long-term good of our country, for its innovativeness, for its competitiveness, for its ability to continue to produce really high quality research, uh, commercialize that research, than quite frankly, undoing a lot of the harm that's been done over the last four years. And I, and I yes, I, I, I'm a Democrat. Yes, I worked for a, a Democratic president in, in the past, but I, like putting, doing the best I can to put all of that aside and just wearing my hat as an objective researcher um, we need uh, much more liberal, frankly, and better immigration policies. America is a country of immigrants. We want, we want immigrants to come into this country. We want to welcome them. We want immigrants to stay here. Right? Th think about how many folks come to Stern, how many smart people, your classmates, come from other countries. Uh, they learn from their peers that are the best and brightest, they learn from their faculty. This might sound immodest that are the best and the brightest. <laughs> we want them to, we want those folks to stay here, to produce here in New York or another country, other um, states, um, you know, the next Googles, the next Microsofts, the next Dow Chemicals, the next Teslas, uh, the next, you know, you, you, you name it. Um, we need much better immigration policy. That's great. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with Rob Siemens. 
Stern Chats is brought to you by Stern Network, an online networking and mentorship platform that makes it easy for Stern students and alumni to connect. Since its launch last spring, thousands of alumni and students have joined the platform, which offers ways to share career insights, connect with others by industry or job function, and join alumni groups based on region, industry, and interests. Stern Network now includes a recently launched business directory, where alumni and student entrepreneurs can list their businesses. In addition to Stern Network, alumni and students can also access the wider NYU Violet Network to connect with all NYU students and alumni. Join Stern Network today at stern.nyu.edu forward slash Stern Network. And we're back. So, Rob, one of the really exciting things I was excited to talk about, I know Daniel also was excited to talk about, and is your bread and butter of your work is your thoughts on artificial intelligence, future of work. Um, as we talked about previously, one of the other things that I had a chance to work on while I was at Berkman Klein was ethics and bias and artificial intelligence, and I will be asking you about that in a little bit. But before we get to that, how does somebody who isn't as technical, um, all of us come from a liberal arts background, what do you think they need to know about artificial intelligence to understand what's going on in the world today? Yeah, um, so here, the analogy that I like to use is um, I know nothing about the engine of my car. I don't. I mean, I've opened it up the hood a couple of times. I've looked at it. I, I don't know how that stuff works. I don't know how the technology that's in the cockpit of my car works. I have no idea how any of it works, but I'm a pretty good driver and I use the car all the time. And I drive my family around. We go out to the Poconos or up to the Catskills. Um, we use the car all the time. Um, I think of AI really similarly. Um, I've, uh, I, I have created like a really simple machine learning model I've used machine learning models, um, but I don't really know how it works. I mean, I've read plenty of academic papers. I've talked um, to folks, including uh, scientists, computer scientists here at NYU that really understand how this stuff works. Um, but I don't think that I need to, I, I, I don't need to be a computer scientist in, in order to study the effect that this technology has on firms and on workers. Just the same way that I don't, I mean, the, right? I, I can be a really good researcher that understands how um, automobiles affects the economy without knowing much about how to build or fix an automobile. So I, so I think that, that that's the right analogy. Now you don't you don't have to understand like um, all the details about how a technology works in order to um, do research on it, in order to do good research on it um, or, or to use it in your job. So when we think about AI's impact in the workplace, I think we think about two things. We think one about it potentially replacing people, and we think about it also as potentially enhancing people's capabilities. And I think a lot of the news that we hear about artificial intelligence has to do with replacement. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to what those enhancements could be and what we could you know, potentially use AI for to improve how we work as people. 
Yeah, so for starters, we're just, we're really in the early days of this. And so everything that we're seeing is sort of small little incremental things, right? So we, as um, me as a professor and, and you both as students at NYU Stern, you, you're perhaps familiar with something called Turnitin. Oh, yes. yes. Are you familiar with Turnitin? Okay. Um, and for, the, for those that don't know, Turnitin, you know, a student like Tiffany or Daniel would submit their work to me uh, via Turnitin. Turnitin would go over their work, compare their work to all the other papers that have got, got submitted that day, as well as this entire corpus of, of literature that they have running uh, natural language processing models over all of that and looking for stuff that's really similar, i.e. maybe some indication that there's some plagiarism happening. Um, that's not replacing anybody's job. Um, I'm not, it's, not totally, it's not totally clear that it's augmenting my job, but that might be an example of how it could augment the work that I do, right? I could sort of quickly run it through that. It doesn't, by the way, it doesn't, it doesn't at all replace the grading that I need to do, right? But it's sort of a quick check just to make sure that students aren't plagiarizing. Frankly, just knowing that it's there, it, it's sort of funny, right? How these systems work. Given that it's there, it actually reduces the likelihood of plagiarism to begin with. So I'm never gonna find plagiarism, mm -hmm. right? Because everybody already knows that they'll be caught. So, so it does help to improve the overall quality of the work. Um, so, so I think I think of that as an example of augmentation. Uh, for those on listening in, right? So you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm holding up my my iPhone. Um, so th this is a beautiful tool that I use. Right, we were talking about driving earlier, and I talked about driving to the Poconos or the Catskills. And thankfully, this phone helps to make sure that my family and I, when we're driving on those roads that we aren't familiar with, that we don't get lost because we're using the uh, you know various mapping features and. And, and things like that. So, so AI is all around us. We're using it all the time. Um, it's probably somewhere working in the back of the Squadcast uh, application, sort of helping to improve the quality of the audio and things like that. Um, but it's but that's all like really. I mean, it's it's wonderful stuff, but it's sort of small incremental stuff. It's not replacing anybody's job. Um, mostly enhancing things, but it's not yet in what I would call like the killer app category right for AI, my point of view is that for ai to really give us a big economic boost which is which is the hope right that, that that's what everybody's hoping for and that ai will be like uh electricity or like steam in terms of one of these really big general purpose technologies that changes the trajectory um of of our economies in the sense of like you know uh ramping up growth more um i think we need some like killer apps right and so I think of that as things like autonomous vehicles um, or perhaps um, certain healthcare applications and, and, and things like that. Uh, we're, we're sort of in the early stages of that. We sort of see evidence that maybe that's around the corner five to 10 years from now, but we're not, we're not there yet. It's interesting that you mentioned healthcare because I'm in a class with, with a different professor who's a little bit more, not fatalistic, but extreme in her views on the potential for artificial intelligence. And an example that we gave in, that she gave in class was about a 45-year-old radiologist. Computers can read medical scans quickly and incredibly accurately. So can artificial intelligence replace a radiologist? And if so, like, what do you do if you're 45 years old and you're still 20 years from retirement? Is that something that you think people in those highly skilled jobs have to worry about with where AI is today and where it could be soon? Um, the short answer is no. The, the applications that get talked a lot about 
like radiology, for example, or driving and, and, and things like that. I think we're really, really far away from a situation where any of those jobs would get replaced. Um, you know, we've seen so many different projections. Radiology is one of them, right? We, we, we've seen projections. We've heard stories that radiologists are, are at risk. They aren't. Um, they're, 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 the, the demand for radiologists has gone up. Their their wages and, and I should I should have this in back in like my back pocket you know I but I don't know what it is off the top of my head but their wages have gone up. Uh, same thing with um, long haul truck drivers. I mean the, the jobs that people think are going to be replaced that that for various reasons have gotten talked about over the last five years, none of that has come to pass. Might it? Yeah, yeah, yes, it might. But um, these things that we're talking about are really really hard to do. I mean, let, let me just like sort of touch on autonomous um, vehicles for a moment. Uh, it was probably, what are we in, 2021 now? I think it was in 2019 that Elon Musk said that um, by 2020, there would be fleets of um, autonomous Tesla taxis. There's, there's no autonomous fleet of any taxi out there, let, let alone of Teslas. Um, why? Well, it's because that you know this technology is really hard to do. It's really hard to get right. Um, it, it's it's easy to maybe like make a video of, of a some sort of autonomous vehicle that looks like it's uh, driving autonomously and not encountering problems. But uh, the, the the facts on the ground is that it's just really hard to do. Um, you're, I don't know if you, you all have been following the story of the can I pronounce it correctly? The, this truck company, autonomous truck company, Nikola, I think it's called. So they put out a lot of videos of, you know, supposedly autonomous trucks driving around. The, many of them turned out to be fake, right? And so this, the founder has had to leave the company. The stock price has cratered. Uh, I think they had been hoping that GM would buy them. GM is no longer going to buy them. I mean, this stuff is so hard to do. Everybody is so eager for it to work well. And so we're sort of eager to buy into the, the stories. And um, unfortunately, we get fooled time and time again. That's a fun mirroring of Tesla, Nikola Tesla. Um, I, I I definitely understand what you mean. I think in high school, I had a chance to build a robot as part of a robot competition. And from that, you know, one of the LED sensors, it looks like it's so easy to just then scale that up. Turns out having a robot sense a line on the ground is not the same as having a full car be able to drive across the city. Um, one of the other things that you talk about in your work is this idea later down the line when these are more sophisticated of an AI interpreter as a new type of job that will come. Can you talk a little bit more about what that would look like and what that training would end up looking like? Yeah, so this, so you mentioned, Tiffany, earlier, your interest in um, uh, AI, sort of the nexus of AI and, and bias. And I, and I think it's particularly around that that we'll start to see this uh, this particular type of new job come up. So um, as more and more firms rely more and more on um, artificially intelligent systems, uh, they're, they're going to be asked to do more, basically more translational work, right? This is our theme, I guess, running through the, the, the thread of our conversation is this sort of translation. And it's a, the, the translation between what computer scientists understand about the algorithm that they've created, as well as what the algorithm really can or, or can't do, and the, how, how the algorithm gets from whatever input is being fed to it to whatever output that it's giving. Being able to sort of translate that and describe that to a lay audience 
I think that there's there's going to be demand for jobs that do that, right? I think you know just like um, all companies, all big companies now have uh, like a public affairs office or a, you know a press office or you know it might go by different names. There'll be an office that, and it'll go by different names, but there'll be an office that, whose job is to describe the technology that the firm does. And so I've, in some of my writing, you're right, I've referred to this as like a quote unquote AI interpreter. And, and that, that, that's what I mean. Just, um, it's like a job function to explain what it is that this technology is doing to a, a broader audience of stakeholders. I feel like oh, by the way, to circle back to your initial question, Daniel and Tiffany at the start of the hour, uh, th this is the type of job that would be great for liberal arts majors. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think that's actually something that could be used now, even as we talk about algorithms that are being used on YouTube, Google, any type of app website that needs to make certain ranking and decisions, how that happens is not easy for everybody to just understand. And so an interpreter, someone who could translate what that actually looks like, what that means would, I think, help a lot of issues that are happening right now. Um, and in that vein, so, and we only have so many minutes left, but I do wanna get your thoughts on a little bit of this ethics and bias in algorithms and artificial intelligence, uh, especially as we kind of are in this in-between role of, them being huge parts of our lives, taking over every single thing and are experiencing a lot of growing pains. They play a big role in credit hiring our criminal, criminal justice system. What do you think are the necessary policies that we need to implement right now? Um, I think it's a great question. And, and um, uh, Tiffany, I'm not trying to like flip the script on on, on you and Daniel again, but but on, honestly, given some of the work that you've probably done in the past um, at uh, the Berkman Klein Center, you, you you're probably much more qualified than I am to to speak to some of that. Um, I think the from the conversations that I've had with startups that are creating new um, products that rely on AI and some of the firms that I've talked to that are eager to purchase the, these products. Um, a theme that comes up a lot is that it's really useful if there are, um, you know, sort of guardrails in place. You know, what I mean is like sort of federal rules and regulation type guardrails so that the firms know what's okay. So that's meaning like the firms that are creating these products know what's okay to create or not create, like what types of privacy laws might be violated um it, you know are there going to be certain um rules you know sort of ethical guidelines and stuff like that either at the federal level or that um groups of companies are going to come up with uh say around facial recognition or something like that the firms really want just a lot of guidance in place right they want sort of like um you know if you're playing tennis you, you want like the lines on the court and then you're happy to play tennis but like without the lines on the court it's you know th 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 there's so much um that's uncertain um and, and so i don't have a great answer to the to like the the bias question uh but i'm just sort of flipping it a little bit i i, I my take from talking to a bunch of companies is they really want sort of the guy they, they do want guidelines in place whatever those guidelines might be they'll take that over no guidelines i actually got an ad earlier today from 
Facebook calling for updated internet regulations. I, I saw the ad, it said, you know, the internet, these rules were written in 1995 and it showed what the internet looked in 1995. And at the end it said the Facebook logo across the, across the front. And I was surprised, but not, you know, shocked by the ad because of exactly what you just said, that these companies want additional guidelines and then they're happy to play mm -hmm. within the, the guidelines that they're given. I was wondering if you have any work that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us. Um, yeah, the, the work I'm doing right at this moment um, is actually more around, it's not quite as fun and sexy as AI. Um, it's on robots and in particular robots uh, between the years 2000 and 2013. So it's sort of, it's not the robots that, you know, sort of run around and do flips and things like this. These are robots in industrial settings um, that get used for manufacturing cars and, and um, electronic components and things like that. And um, in particular, what, what I've been doing is working with a couple of co-authors, one of whom is from China, with some uh, great data um, at the plant level in China, where we know which plants are adopting robots and which ones aren't. And we're looking to find out what the effect of this adoption is on uh, workers and on plant level productivity. And so let, let me, I'll sort of tell you some of the early findings. Um, first, the, perhaps not surprisingly, the plants that adopt the robots become more productive. Perhaps surprisingly, they also hire more workers. Okay, so this is where we're, uh, earlier we were talking about like complement or substitute when it comes to, or augment when it comes to these new technologies. This is an example of um, augmentation or complementarities as opposed to substitution. So that, that's sort of the initial findings. Now what's interesting though, um, so in China, many of the firms are state-owned enterprises, right? They are owned by um, uh, the Chinese government. And one of the things that we're finding is that, it, that these state-owned enterprises also are adopting robots, uh, but they are not getting that productivity boost and they're not hiring. They're also not getting that employment boost. And so we've done a little bit of digging to try to figure out why. And it looks like there are certain restrictions in place um, at these state-owned enterprises where they're not, they're not able to um, sort of shift the mix of workers in the firm. So, so for private firms in China during this time period that are adopting these robots, what we're seeing is a shift in the composition of workers, a lot more sort of higher, more highly educated workers that are being hired and things like that. And, and that's leading to the employment growth. Instead of the state-owned enterprises, we're not seeing that sort of you know, it's almost a little bit of like employment churn you'd like to see as you're sort of shifting some occupations out of the newer ones in. So you're not seeing that. And as a result, they're spending money on this technology, but they're not able to take advantage of it. And so they don't get the employment growth and they also don't get the productivity growth. Um, in any case, that's, uh, that, that's some of the newer work that I've, that I've been doing. And as a, as a last question, uh, I was just wondering if there's anything in the AI machine learning robotics world right now that has you really excited? It still is autonomous vehicles. Mm. I, I really think that this can be like a big killer app, quote unquote, you know, that's the term I've used before. Um, one of, we've, so we've touched on AI, we've touched on regulation. Here, here is where I think that there's like a nice little nexus um, where if we can get some federal guidelines in place, around autonomous vehicles, I think that that will actually help spur 
uh, some advances in autonomous vehicles. And we'll start to see, I, you know, I don't think it's next year that we'll see Tesla fleets of taxis, but maybe within five years, I think, I think that that's possible. But we need some federal guidelines in place around um, uh, autonomous vehicles. Th there is some legislation that sort of stalled in the House and stalled in Senate. Um, hope, I mean, I think we have to get through COVID and, and these relief bills first, but then hopefully we can start to move on to things like regulation around autonomous vehicles. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This was great. I love talking about all of this with you. Thank you. I, I've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you both. Thanks so much.